So I just like pulled a book off the shelf, right? And I flipped through like until I found a little thing that I highlighted. I have a, a green check mark next to this. And this is the quote. It's on page 238 of Parable of the Sower. And it's the uh, paperback edition that has the reading group guide in the back. Um, and it says, um, the act of writing itself was a kind of therapy. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's so a good, good one. I'm Autumn Brown, a queer science fiction writer, a theologian, a mother of dragons, and a healing justice facilitator for social movements living in rural Minnesota. And I'm Adrienne Marie Brown, author of Emergent Strategy, co-editor of Octavia's Brood, writer, facilitator of Black liberation work, auntie extraordinaire, doula, and pleasure activist living in Detroit. And this is How to Survive the End of the World, our podcast about learning from apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. And today we are super excited to have the founders of the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network here with us. The Legacy Network, um, Ayana Jameson and Moya Bailey, both of whom are beloved Earthseed, first family, great teachers and carriers of Octavia's work. And we are going to look at the legacy of wisdom that Octavia left us for surviving apocalypse and how that legacy lives on today. So by way of introduction into this show, um, Moya and Ayana, can you both tell us what made you fall in love with Octavia Estelle Butler? Go, Moya. You could go. <laughs> <laughs> so my story of coming into Octavia started in college. I have a dear friend who told me about Octavia, and we were going to this conference in New York called Yari Yari Pimbari, and it was a conference of Black women writers from all over the world. And she was like, we have to go see Octavia Butler. And I was like, who... I don't know this person. And we went to the room and it was packed. I mean, black women were sitting on the floor, standing. And I was like, who is this person? How have I not heard of them? And then Octavia speaks and the whole room gets quiet and her voice fills the room. And I was like, this is otherworldly. <laughs> I am in awe. And it was just such an incredible moment to actually hear her voice and see her. Uh, that was my first coming to Octavia and it was such a visceral experience that I was like, oh, I, I need to read this right now. And the first thing I read was Parable of the Sower and it just opened my eyes to what science fiction can be. I had been interested in science fiction before, but that work really uh, opened my eyes to what uh, Black women can do with science fiction. So good. What about you, Ayana? Well, um, I came to Octavia uh, sort of in a way that she was always one or two degrees of separation away from me. So my, f my folks were divorced. So I spent time in the Inland Empire with my mom. Um, and um, so that's like east of L.A. And then my dad lived um, in Pasadena, Altadena. And so that is where she was. Um, and I um, came to her writing by um, like going through some really difficult things. One is that I was a substitute teacher during grad school. So I was working in middle schools and there was a lot of turmoil going on. Um, 
Um, mm. This and when I went to high school, that's when I think Prop 187 uh, or some anti-immigrant legislation passed. So people were um, they were like basically trying to throw my classmates out. Um, and mm. it was the legislation that sparked. Um, parable of the sower and so this is the political consciousness that i grew up in like oh this is an issue we don't want people to be educated or have medical care and then i went back to teach in middle schools where i had been a student and there had been walkouts for more proposed legislation a student committed suicide and then i'd be teaching summer school or whatever and see this kid's face um on a t-shirt right and so it's very much in communion with um different different spaces right like my middle my middle school self um myself as an adult being mistaken for a, a child and also being in graduate school reading all these dead white men like freud and Jung and all of this stuff and being like okay this isn't resonating with me and what am i going to write my dissertation mm -hmm. on and i have a friend who was like you should write read this book parable of the sower and i had i was in this relationship <laughs> where the person had been a reporter for the la times and the la weekly and been like i i interviewed octavia butler at her home and i was like yeah whatever to all to these folks right um and eventually <laughs> oh. right right yeah yeah whatever right <laughs> lesson plans yada yada grad school gotta write a paper so so um, eventually, um, I in the Borders bargain section, I saw a copy of Reading Down the Bones, which is the second um, of Sheree R. Thomas's um, oh, Dark yes. Matter series. And I'm a book addict. And so I yeah. saw that cover and picked it up, like knowing nothing about it. And there was an interview in the back called um, or a conversation called The Second Law of Thermodynamics. So this is the first yes. writing of her that I read was mm. her in conversation with Samuel R. Delaney and Stephen oh. Barnes and Tanana Reeve Du. And so I was like, hmm, this is very interesting. Okay. So eventually I got the first set of the Dark Matter books and I read The Evening, The Morning, and The Night. And I was like, yes. okay. And my salve and, and respite from all the grad school work was reading Octavia. And I devoured every single thing that she wrote in every interview. And I became totally obsessed with her, like right mm. toward the end of her life. Mm. And someone was saying, oh, you should meet her. And I remember where her house is. It was just this weird overlap where, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the transition between living and, and dead, like, was that that fabric was sort of peeled open for me in this time um, mm -hmm. when I was uh, studying. I know it's a long roundabout no, thing. No, it's lots beautiful. Of, lots you. of synchronicities, but that was my way. And yeah, Parable of the Sower is what I read. Yeah. Um, because someone, someone told me they thought maybe I had a hyper-empathy syndrome because of the responses I was having <laughs> to my students' trauma. Yes, yeah. yeah. I still think so, that yeah. about you. Um, so... Now, it would be really interesting to hear, now that we know what both of your journeys were to Octavia's work, it would be interesting to hear what were your journeys towards each other and towards creating this legacy network honoring her. You know, how did you find each other? How did you conceive of this idea of creating a legacy network? Can you tell the story of how that came to be? Oh, uh, Ayana, do you want to start? Because our story has its own synchronicities that I think are pretty important, which started when we met without realizing that we had met. Ooh. <laughs> I think um, if I remember right, one of my first academic conferences was the National Women's Studies Association Conference in 2009. Um, and I... Um, put together this panel on Octavia and it was during the final session on the final day of the conference. It was in Atlanta. So I stayed at my dad's house 
um, and I went to the conference, um, and uh, Moya's friend Zach was on the panel, and afterwards, like, Moya came up to me and gave me her Emory card, and we met, and then she took a photo of all of the panel participants, and then we went home, and it was like, again, yeah, yeah, whatever, right? But Octavia had her own... Um, her own things in mind because yeah. because Adrian is part of this story of our re meeting. That's right? true. That's true. <laughs> true. So then, what happened, Moya? Ooh. Okay. So the next piece. Well, I think you should tell the OEB legacy part before, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. I feel like I'm talking a lot. I always feel Keep that way. Talking. Um, <laughs> We'll, we'll let you know, babe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so 2009, we meet, and she gives me her card, which I hold on to, right? I probably still have it somewhere, even though it's been almost a decade. So, in uh, I'm I'm deciding I'm writing about like the archetype of change in my dissertation, and how the archetype of change like shows up in Octavia's work, and how that helps me to understand my own trauma like working with students mm. and so it becomes all about Octavia um, and I um, I I was making some inquiries about where she was buried like I thought since she passed away in Seattle that she would be cremated or who knows I had no idea but it turns out that she was local so I drive to her grave site and I am there and I'm like looking for it I use the internet on my like old phone with a tiny screen. I don't even know if phones were touchscreens. It was like one of some of the mm-hmm, first generation mm-hmm. touchscreens, right? Mm-hmm. So old. In 2011, it's August, so it's blistering outside, and I can't find her grave. So I go back into the office. Like, I ask the ladies to help me. Like, two or three different ladies come out and try to help me find where she's supposed to be. And finally, I use a picture on the internet that shows me that she, at this time, we thought, was next to the cinder block wall. Um, and so I start pulling the grass off, you know, getting dirt under my nails. And I realize like that it's totally overgrown. Nobody has been there. And it was heartbreaking. So I go back into the office um, and I ask if someone could come and like clean it off. So a gentleman comes with a weed whacker, which is like, you know, not not an item that you see when you go to Forest Lawn or whatever. This is a community, uh, community cemetery. Um, and he cleans it off. And then he comes over to me where I'm watching and he says, ma'am, are there any more of your relatives that I can take care of? And it was like a punch in the gut. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I felt like, wow, uh, no one has been here and other people should know where she is so they can pay their respects. And so I started this sort of campaign called Visit Octavia Butler in in that August 2011. And then eventually it grew into the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network. Mm. And I had already been Facebook stalking people. Like, um, <laughs> as a matter of fact, Kim, Kim Milan, Kim Katrin Milan, mm-hmm, she was Crosby mm-hmm. at the time, said, oh, um, my, favorite blog, my favorite blogger is Adrian Marie Brown. So I began to Facebook stalk Adrian. <laughs> um, and then all of this is happening and I get um, Alexis Pauline Gums to be on my dissertation committee, right? Wow. As my external reader. She's like, if you're doing Octavia stuff, you need to talk to Adrian, mm. I think. And so Adrian and I, I feel like we have a conversation. And then Adrian, yeah. you're like, oh, if you're doing anything that has to do with Octavia, you need to talk to Moya. So Moya and I set up a <laughs> Skype interview. We turn on the video and we hear each other's voices and we're like, um, Wait a minute. we know each other. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that. Yes. 
And it was like, you know, we, Adrian and I said, oh, we're Octavia soulmates. But then we're like, oh, no, we need to talk to Moya. And then it was like, whoa, the like just the waves of emotion like someone someone is deep in this relationship with me right and I have not you know I've not been in their presence for a long time that's the way it felt Um, yeah and I would add to that that the allied media conference too played a really important role and the uh way that you Adrian were sort of stewarding Octavia and Octavia's visions of the future at the conference really helped Uh, get some of these ideas going. And it just became all of these different ways that the lines of the pattern were expanding. Mm -hmm. So from the book and then also the work Ayana was doing and my own interest in uh, going to the Huntington archive. And it was early on that we learned that, uh, her papers were there and we were like, you have to make these papers available. And we even drafted like a letter initially saying, when, when will the papers be available? Well, I think this is what was happening. (laughs) So, so according to the folks at the Huntington library where her papers are about 40 people had been emailing and calling and asking when the stuff would be available. Right. And I knew that her papers were there because of the person from the LA times back in the day. Like she had said to him in an interview, if anything ever happens to me, my stuff is going to the Huntington. Right. And so before there was a press release at the Huntington, before I decided my dissertation, before I met Adrian and before, like before, you know, that relationship was like from 2005. So before she she died I knew that that's where the papers were going right and it's just so happens in all madness right um my my husband who I hadn't met again until after Moya and I met in person and I mean we knew each other before right like let's uh-huh. say 2000 uh-huh. 2001 and then we met up again in 2009 and got married in 2010 but he works like five minutes away from the Huntington Library one of our first dates was there oh. but this was like before <laughs> she adorable. Yeah, <laughs> Whoa, it's it's crazy, though, because then I was emailing the people like Ma- Moya said, like we were emailing separately before we had connected. Oh, um, and then wow. I would hear I would hear the lady on the radio. I'd be like, oh, Sue, I feel like I know you. I've been emailing you for five years <laughs> and the stuff's still not ready, you know. Mm. Um, and then when the papers I know. Um, <laughs> do you have any paper? Do you have any sense of what I'm sorry to interrupt your flow? I'm just wondering, like, do you have any sense of what the holdup was around I mean, aside uh, from like I mean, racism, it was so vast. So it's a huge collection. It's a lot of items, and I think to have someone go through it meticulously and actually catalog everything took some time. Also, and and this has been our experience in the archive as well. Uh, Octavia is such a rare treat in terms of both what she collected and kept from her own. Archive. I mean, she is somebody who understood the importance and value of her work and legacy in life. And so set some things up even before uh, the archivists had a chance to look at it. She knew her work was valuable. So there's just an amount, um, an immense amount of material and objects that are part of the collection. So it really took some time to go through it all. And Octavia is also unique in that she is one of the few Black people, Black writers who are in the collection, and her work 
and the interest around her work, I think, is unparalleled. And I think Ayana can speak a little bit more to that. Well, um, so I live in driving distance now of the Huntington. Um, and so um, and I've done some work in the city there. And so it's a familiar place to me. So uh, to go back to that story, um, Moya was finished working on an article or something. And she came in December, um, like about a a few weeks after the collection opened. So That's she, right. So I was the fifth right. person to go to the archive. Wow. <laughs> and th- and there are um, over 8,000 items, um, individual items, and some of those individual items have like 500 pages to them. And to backtrack, when she passed away in 2005, her f- family had to go there, pack up stuff, store things. And so that took a while. So by the time they got the stuff in 2008, they're like, what do we even, you know, how do you even approach all this material? Mm. So Moya went to do that article and then I was meeting with her in her hotel and we were processing the information together. And I began doing like geo, geo, I don't know, kind of like geo spiritual historical um, (laughs) research about. You better do geo spiritual historical research. Thank you. We needed that term in the movement. I didn't know I needed it, and now it's here, (laughs) and I can't let it. Geo spiritual historical research. Go Go ahead. So we were driving around. I was sort of giving Moya a tour of Pasadena and taking her to the gravesite. And we were talking about the elements of things that we found there related to her family history and doing um, like census data work and things like that. So we really, uh, our working relationship was really cemented in that that Christmas time. Um, and then um, actually... Uh, April 1st of the next year, I went there by myself and started gathering information. And so like Moy and I would be in dialogue about it and and, and agreed to have like a shared um, non-hierarchical um, academic relationship around this work. And that's part of what Octavia Butler Legacy Network is um, because uh, we're, we're doing the work and then helping scholars to find the things that they need and giving them you know, a boost where they need it as opposed to being like, oh, I found this and I'm going to, you know, publish 18 papers on it and I'm the smartest, I'm the best, I'm the first, mm. because we know that that's anti-Octavia in a way. Um, yeah. yeah. That we, we're anti-one-up, one-upmanship. And so that's yeah. part of how we, we vibe. Um, so, yeah, the collection is really vast and the way that you access it is like one box at a time. So one of 300 and some odd boxes, like 380 boxes or whatever, you can ask for one at a time. Then you go through the folders and look at the thing. So it's very time consuming um, mm. and very you have to be very deliberate and very organized when you do it. And so it, it takes a lot of time and energy and resources to gather the information that you need. Mm, so good. So. I have a question for y'all then. So you come together, you're digging in the crates through the, the Huntington papers, you're building this this relationship with each other. And so then what was the what was the idea for the actual network itself? And what are your hopes at this point for the network? I think that there have just been so many uh, different strands and different ideas that Octavia Butler has helped to grow and extend. So part of the inspiration for the network is that there are so many people taking her work in lots of new directions and that she's such, uh, her work just allows for 
us to think through so many complicated questions of our time, so many yeah. questions about what it means to be human, uh, what it means to be in right relation with the planet and right relation with each other. So we were seeing that growing and, and uh, being something that could be spread out and people were already doing it. So we wanted to connect people who were thinking in that way. And I think Octavia's Brood was another really wonderful example of how the pattern can be expanded. So getting activists to think about fiction and to think about the future is such a beautiful vision that you all offered. And I think it it helped us also begin to see possible connections for the pattern. So one of the things that we did, which I'm really proud of, is the collaboration with Ruha Benjamin and the Black to the Future or Ferguson is the Future conference that we did at Princeton. And yes. And at that conference, we really wanted to give artists and activists who are working in this moment an opportunity to talk with each other and to build some connection about how activism is its own version of of science fiction. It's envisioning a world and imagining that we can do something different. And having people together uh, and having people come together around different art forms was so powerful. So we Mm. had uh, writers, we had artists, we had musicians, we had a DJ. I mean, bringing people together uh, through different artistic means and through scholarship was such an incredible uh, time for the network. And Moya, can I just interrupt you there and say also that it was constructed? It's one of the best constructed gatherings I've ever gone to. Um, like the way that y'all, like it was like the first day was just writers in a writing retreat with each other. Like we just got to to kick it with each other, but it was like kicking it. Like it was like Tanana Do, Nidia Korafor, Nalo Hopkinson, Stephen Barnes. Like it was <laughs> Rashida Phillips, like Walida Imarisha, all these writers just getting to play together, talk together, feel each other, hold each other, and write together. Yes, Andrea Hairston was there. So was Daniel Jose Older. So it was a multi-generational, yes, uh, Nas. It was a a multi-generational gathering that Octavia would have, like something that would have happened, something that I feel that she would have supported to pass on that institutional cultural you know spiritual knowledge about what it means to be a writer a black speculative fiction writer and what it means to be doing it as a living and what it means to be alive when you need that speculative existence I was not there in the writer's retreat but that yeah that is how it was was designed it was sacred space and then and then it came out of that so it was like that day where we all got to build relationship and then the next day just the artist like all the other artists flowed in and that so the next day it was like you have DJs you have um spoken word artists you had visual artists like there were so many incredible artists who were doing different work that's like tendrils of Octavia going out in the world and then the and that day we got to dream together and map out all of our dreams and our work with each other and then the third day was a big public day, which people can still access online. It was like panels, discussions, all this like 
um, sort of like, I don't know, it just felt larger, more public facing, but it was like public facing off of, you know, days of building trust with each other. And that was and that was in 2015. I feel like the symposium was actually on September 11, 2015, and it was at Princeton University, which had sort of a raw, it resonated in a really raw way for many of us, um, just because um, Octavia was very much a working class person and um, probably lived below the poverty line for much of her life and existence and carried the scars of that poverty, I think, even, even unto her death, right? Um, because... Uh, she, you know, things that she could have maintained had she had health insurance or access to care. Um, some things would not have been um, at the point where they were when she passed away is my is my estimation. Yeah. And so just, you know, the black blood, sweat and tears of a space. Right. Um, like who built the Huntington Library? Um, p- black people were not allowed to you know, live there. It's still not very diverse. It's not financially diverse. Like there are bus stops there, but it's for people's maids to come and, you know, walk to their estate or whatever. It's very, um, it's a, it's an interesting juxtaposition, right? Mm -hmm. Um, To have Mm -hmm. all of this richness there. I mean, even the community of people that came to see her. uh, So there was an exhibit in 2017, um, that went with her 70th birthday. So out of the 8,000 items, they pulled 100 items out of the archive mm-hmm. to let people come and see. And it was one of the more popular exhibits that that was there. And um, by the time we had the conference, they had gone through uh, like 5,000 brochures, meaning people had come to visit in such volume, they didn't have enough to give out to our crowd of like 200 or 300 people that were coming to the conference because her work had brought them there. And so many wow. different kinds of people um, were there to see that exhibit. Um, so really, uh, she brings, she she sends out these tendrils, as, as Moya said, and our job, or we feel... Uh, a stewardship to uh, highlight the work that other people are doing um, and that they're already doing maybe in her name or in her spirit, right? Um, that is changing people's lives for the better and speaking up, speaking up about uh, the things that need to happen for us to survive. Mm. Like they're already doing that, right? We don't, we don't have to say anything. People are already doing that work. And that's what the, the core of the, the core of it is. Um, and to answer the second part of your question from way back, we <laughs> we see the Octavia Butler Legacy Network as not only being a virtual community or an occasional community where we partner with big institutions and create these big things, like we did something at UC San Diego, we did something with Clock Shop, a nonprofit organization in Los Angeles. Um, they have podcasts that they produced that you might want to splice in as well. They have lots of there was lots of radio interviews and all kinds of things that came out of that. Mm. Um, but we would we're going to create some uh uh we're going to launch a patreon that will allow uh the community to sort of um convene in a in a permanent virtual space but also to to allow me to create coursework and other things that adrian and i have lovingly called octavia U up yes. to this point <laughs> so i'm ready to do that this summer yes. and i'd like to to do Octavia Butler Legacy Network full time instead of relying on institutional support that may or may not come because you know I have young children and I I have student loan debt and I <laughs> and, and I have a uh, you know I 
I teach for some universities, but my heart is with Octavia Butler Legacy Network. And so this is the time when we're transitioning to that so that I can survive into the fu- into the future. Right. Um, and that um, it makes me nervous to talk about it because it's so important to me. Um, and I I. I miss being in that community. Like people come here to visit or I give them a tour or whatever. And then eventually they go home and I'm like here by myself. Right, right, right. Reading papers <laughs> or whatever. Octavia. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> well, actually, actually, Ayana, this, it feels actually like an interesting segue into another question that we were going to ask you and Moya both mm-hmm. about lessons because, you know, what you're talking about, you know, creating a Patreon to create like a community supported a financially supported community network that supports you in developing this work even further um, is such a it's such a smart and to me very like Octavia-esque strategy for like here's how we're going to build it this is the next step we're going to take to actually build to to build the community that we need um, like moving outside of the institution and um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about other lessons from Octavia other lessons that Octavia has offered us continues to offer us as we face you know apocalyptic conditions or conditions that for a variety of reasons are no longer supporting us maybe have never supported us. Um, but now the face of those conditions is so clear. Um, mm. What are some of the other lessons that she has to teach us about how to navigate this time? One of my favorite Octavia lessons is one that I got from Parable of the Sower. And that lesson is uh, like pe- your people will find you. Um, I think as an activist, I actually had the privilege of hearing Miss Major talk last night at Northeastern, and uh, one of the people who was talking to her was another uh, Black trans woman who is an activist, and she was saying she really wants to like pull people along. Like, why can't people just join the movement and understand that we all need to be doing this work with all of our time? And Miss Major said you know, people will find you, like work with the people who are already there and uh, put your energy into the people who are showing up. And that to me seems reflected also in Lauren's journey uh, in Parable. You know, the people who came along, who uh, joined her on her journey up, up the coast, those were the people who she was in alignment with. And so that, to me, is such a a wonderful, uh, such a wonderful thing to hold on to, that you don't have to convince anyone uh, to join. Uh, if people see it, they see it. And to me, I think that's the thing that separates like intentional community from like a cult, which is <laughs> like yes, coercive yes. and. Yes. Um, <laughs> And I'm so glad that I just thought about that because I've been watching Wild Wild Country on Netflix, mm. which if you haven't seen, you should see it because I'm also okay. a little bit obsessed with cults and mm. kind of the <laughs> line between cults, religion and and community. And that is so yeah. strange. My best friend just texted me this morning recommending an episode of that. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we I should all be happens. watching it. Octavia Octavia like I think that's and I think that's a question in her work too you know how do we create 
community in a way that is open to disagreement, but also, you know, sustains all of the people in it. And that is a human question that we continually are trying to figure out. But here's the second part of that, I think, and bringing up cults, like there are numerous notes about cargo cults and different things. And in the archive, um, there are notes and studies about um, cults and religion and psychology and all the related things way before the parables came out, actually. Mm. Um uh, actually, in the pa- in the Patternist series, like the Patternists were uh, originally designed to be some kind of cult, cults with, yeah. And so it's interesting that, um, like, she wanted to study, like, what are the good elements of cults? What are the things that people are drawn to? How, what is it that they get? And to add to what Moya is saying, like, about being with the people that are near you and putting your resources into them and not having to convince anyone. But the the other part is people being able to realize that your mutual survival is dependent upon working it out and being with one another in some kind of relationship or in some kind of mutual, um, mutual understanding that each each person will survive um, as opposed to trying to tear down or cut through or kill off one another that there, it could be a tenuous relationship, but that, you know, our survival is, is interdependent. It's not, you know, every individual person for themselves or every small collective or every uh, family for themselves, but multiple families together uh, supporting one another to to pull resources. Um, and that's, I think, a lesson that we take from her and put into practice um, kind of on a daily basis, right? Yes. Yeah. I wanted to build on what you just said, Ayana, because... There's a um, part or a book that is not published, uh, which is in Octavia's uh, archive at the Huntington, and it's called Blind Sight. Oh yeah, and that book and that text is really about cults and really about uh, kind of that line between cults and religion, and uh, I think in her work. In that, with that text, which this is also another one of our goals, is to maybe convince this state that it needs to be published. Uh, yes, please. <laughs> but in that work, she's really working through how do we uh, make connection, maintain connection, and what about uh, cults and religion is co- coercive. How do people walk away? Um, how is that then leveraged for good or for ill? Uh, those are those are questions that come up, yeah, and beyond parable and into the future. And I and I feel like um, I mean that book is a foundational text, um, and without it, there the parables doesn't happen, fledgling doesn't happen. That's right. Um, without without that book, we don't get. Um, we don't get all of the patternist books. Absolutely. Like there are things that were being written simultaneously. And some of the ideas come from blindsight. And the thing for me as a California based historian, it's a geographical spiritual book. Literally she, she's, she, they're driving to different places on the California freeways. We see a little bit of that walking in the parables, but it's like, Whoa, like when you read that book, you're dropped into the map and you're like, now I understand what that is and where that was. And in conversations with my 
mother. Um, she has told me that some of what is happening in the plot of that book has to do with the way that charismatic religious organizations were having different revivals. And, um, you know, before the big box church, like people like this is what happened in, in different sects of Christianity in Southern California is that people were getting together and having revivals and different things. And then someone was like, oh, no, 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 we don't want the black folks and white folks and Mexican folks and Asian folks worshiping together. Let's find some way to, to divvy that up. And when I explained to her some of the plot, she's like, oh, that sounds like X, Y, Z theological text that I read in my Christian studies, you know, so like Octavia was was talking about all the things that Moya mentioned and some that we're not even saying because it's so mind blowing, but really also about um, the relationship between psychology and religion and like parapsychology um, and the unseen and spirituality, like all of those things, the questions that she was asking herself, um, she was working through in this book. And the other interesting thing is that this is one of the only books where the protagonist, one of the main protagonists is a white man wow fascinating and a question about this book is is this book unfinished as well as unpublished or is it just unpublished yes so there are several iterations of this book so that's another piece of it too she wrote at least six different versions and um in most versions there is this white male protagonist uh but she started out a little differently at different times. Uh, there's another uh, character that is uh, his, well, I was going to say contemporary, but you know how she is about ages. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so the peers and all. <laughs> well, there's a, well, there's a female identified character that also carries a lot of the psychological, emotional weight yes. of the story Very and moves well it said, forward. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, obviously, we don't want to spoil it. And obviously, we don't, you know, the story doesn't belong to us. Right. But it's hard to even explain it in a way that does justice to what is actually written there. Well, and of course, Um, of course, you know, an aspect of all of this, I think, is, you know, there's a thread of grief and longing that we have in these mm -hmm. conversations. I remember back in 2009, I think it was. 2008 or 2009 Medgar Evers College hosted um, I think in partnership with the Center for Black Literature they hosted a a, con- a conference on Octavia Butler's work um, that I was fortunate to attend and um, her agent was there and she read us a letter that Octavia had written to her shortly before she died in which she was describing a new piece of work that she was making that was like set on, I think it was like four or five. You, you'll, you probably know about this because you've been through the archives, but there's like this, uh, this new piece of work that she had conceived where she was telling the story of the colonization of multiple planets from the perspective of the planets being colonized by these like humanoid travelers who were presumably coming from earth um, and trying to find a new place to live. And, and I just remember sitting there kind of listening to the agent reading this letter. And there's this amazing moment in the letter where, where Octavia Butler sort of stops as she's writing the letter and says, ah, this is what I sound like when I'm falling in love (laughs) about Mm -hmm. her own work, (laughs) you know, and it just Mm. that, you know, that the way that she oriented to the expansive way that she obviously oriented to her own writing process and her own process of developing, 
you know, I was looking back through those interviews and seeing how she talked about conceiving stories when she was 10 and 12 and 15 that would have come out when she was in her 30s and 40s. And, you know, that she sat with her work for such a long period of time. So just I think there's such longing and just knowing that there is this work that is there that we (laughs) that it sounds like only a, a really select group of people can really access because of the amount of time that it takes to really move through it. Yeah, thank you for saying that. Well, I wanted to say, I think that that takes us to something that I'm really curious about, which is you all have been going in the papers and you're doing this work. And I remember you talking about that you were going to write a biography. Um, And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that because I feel like short of convincing the you know, a state to release everything in my lifetime, um, your biography and like the work of people who are going in to the papers and studying might be the best way that many of us are able to at least get the the gist of what she was still working on and thinking about um, and and the threads that we could be or should feel responsible for carrying forward. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Are you still working on the biography or or other ways of bringing that work forward? Um, I, uh, I feel like suspicious about, um, or super (laughs) superstitious. I feel superstitious, like talking about something that I don't have the ink dry on, but I do, um, what you mean, but I do want to say one of the things that takes time. Um, and one of the reasons why I am creating a Patreon is because my dissertation is, uh, is biographical. So I took all of the interviews and things that I had available before the archive opened. And I tried to put the stories that she told about herself in chronological order. And more than just the stories like, um, blind sight that are not published, I feel like even more rich about caring strands forward there's so much of her personal writing and journals and things in there and for me her notes and research on the books not even just the published works like the published works for me or even the stories that are completed but not published like that's like the tip of the iceberg like when you see people talking about consciousness and they draw this like mountain this island and only the top volcano is sticking out like all the stuff underneath the water like those are the things that I find the most compelling because those are the things that tell me about the struggles that she had and her as a real person before I project my needs of you know what I need from her onto her right like that's to me what I what I've been doing is going back through my dissertation research and being like oh well I can verify this or I can verify that and the other thing that I think needs to be accomplished is that there are elders um, that uh, are her contemporaries that went to school with her at the same time and they're they're 70 and they're 70 years old and if we don't record those stories of their lives and how things were for black folks in the inland empire um, in the san gabriel valley like at the time when octavia was writing in jim crow california like nobody talks about that um people act like this is not the state with the most jim crow laws on the books of any other state in the whole union right wow and so that that piece of history is what really is compelling to me in addition to the stories all of that experience like that stuff is what informs her published writing Another piece of it that's been important for us is trying to make the work more accessible to more people. So we, we did a special issue of a journal 
um, called Palimpsest. We're going to be doing another special issue, kind of making the work more accessible. When we did the Huntington event, all of the talks were recorded, so there's audio of of people's conversations, which also might be interested, interesting to drop in. There's, uh, you know, a great presentation by Amy Bong about um, Octavia Butler and slime molds and how she was thinking about them and how they Ooh. became a really important thread for her, her work going forward. And one of the things we want the Legacy Network to do is give people a way in because the Huntington itself is pretty intimidating. You know, it's an and inaccessible and not exactly. close to anything. Exactly. So one of the things that we are going to do is add a, uh, a space on the website so we can kind of take people through the process of getting your credentials so that you as an independent scholar can go into the archive and give people some tips about what it's like to go into that space because it's pretty jarring even as somebody who's done archival work before uh, going into that archive for me I mean it's very cold I mean cold in all of the senses you know it's it's cold in terms of affect and in temperature and it's just like a hard place to be and usually you're the only black person there at least I was except for one of the staff people who was behind the desk and that is who is now who has now moved on exactly. so sometimes you're the only one exactly <laughs> oh, no exactly um, and, you know, that's one of the things that we've done already for free, right? When we meet a scholar that's open to a non-hierarchical relationship, if someone asks for help, we give them help. I've had lunch with people and taken them on tours or um, assisted them with, like, gathering notes or showing them things that I, like, the same thing that Moya and I do together. Like, we we are, you know, we hope to be able to have a scholarship for working class or first generation or independent scholars like folks that wouldn't normally go in there with a PhD or, a, you know, whatever to, to go and do research because that's what kind of person she was. She was a regular person doing library work to, you know, the library was her office. Um, and this is not a kind of library where you can go and check out books and take them and, you know, be in relationship with them. It's a very different process. And the shadow and I, the shadow of, you know, that location being land that probably belonged to Native Americans. And then, you know, like all, the history of the place, it, it's not talked about. It's an, there's an interesting thing. Like there is this gallery of busts um, that is all the way around the room that you sit in to access the archives. And it's people, it's like people, it's, it's marble busts of all white men. There's not a single woman there. And when, and like everyone complains about sitting there trying to do your work with like white men looking down their noses at you, like people that didn't think, not, not all of them, but people that, that wouldn't regard you as someone who was smart enough or uh, human enough to be doing this kind of intellectual engagement, right? Um, and that's, that's the space that you're in, an institution where women couldn't work there until after Huntington's death, like in 1930, like this is the space you work in, like where, 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 uh, where black people could not live, like, you know, Octavia's mom was a maid in houses, you know, across the street from the institution where her papers are. Uh, I mean, not literally, but I'm saying she was a maid for very wealthy people. So, you know, that that's something that, you know, you can feel the ghost of that when you're in there working as a 
person of color or a queer person or a woman, you feel that when you're there. And we want to be able to support people in that work in a more pronounced way. And it certainly cannot be done in a vacuum, right? And, t- and time and time and resources go into that process um, because not, not everyone has the institutional support or even the transportation um, there's a there was a blog that someone um, published about how they went to visit the exhibit and how they they and their child were treated as a woman of color and sadly she went there um, Cecilia Caballero and um, she ended up writing this blog several months later but it I come to find out she was going to come to the conference and she felt so terrible after her interactions with like folks working there that you know she she didn't you know she didn't come back for the conference which is very upsetting to me because like you know I would have been like bring your baby like come on you like you you know like bring your child my nine-week-old came to Princeton my 11-month-old same kid was at UCSD like I've you know like that's that's how you have to do it I can't afford full-time child care like you know but yeah right and then and just knowing that and I love that you all are bringing that attention to developing a resource for people not just about how to get credentialed to get or what the, what they need to get in the door but also preparing their bodies and hearts for what the experience will be um, because it does take you know having uh, yeah being a parent myself and knowing like it does take so much grit to move your body through the experience of being in a space with your child where you and your child are not welcome and choosing to do it anyway, (laughs) you know? So I I really want to just honor y'all for having the attentiveness to actually write those resources for others and know that that probably comes through just having had direct experience and understanding how important it is. Um, I want to say I know we're 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 moving towards needing to close out together but one of the things that Adrian and I have made a practice as a part of this podcast is we always try to either open with or at some point in an episode regardless of the topic we try to include a quote from Octavia like something whether it's something she said in an interview oftentimes it's an earth seed verse or a quote from one of the novels that we love um, and we were wondering if y'all would um, play along with us and share with us um, a favorite quote that you have um from Octavia's work or from interviews that you've read and or even from her notes like things that she said in her in her papers that you're like oh she said this I want y'all to know about it um so please please uh share with us what are your favorite Octavia quotes now this is hard it's like it's like picking a favorite child Oh. It doesn't have to be favorite. It doesn't have to be favorite in the sense of excluding others. It could just be favorite in the sense of I love this so much. Fair enough. That's how I think of favorite. Fair enough. Because I'm like everything's my favorite. So of course, Virgo. I have a good one. Go for it. I've got a. I've got a good one. So I literally like I do all my stuff like all my like video type of stuff from home in this corner of my of of one of the rooms that where I keep all of her books and, and NK Jemison's book. So I just like pulled a book off the shelf. Right. And I flipped through like until I found a little thing that I highlighted, I have a a green check Mark next to this. And this is the quote it's on page 238 of parable of the sower. And it's the uh, paperback edition that has the reading group guide in the back. Um, And it says um, the act of writing itself was a kind of therapy. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
Oh, and I'm going to re- I'll just I'll just go back and read you the whole little paragraph to contextualize it um, or just this little section, because I feel like it's important. Um, she couldn't have gone for a year without writing. I found occasional references to notes made then. No doubt. By then, she was writing on whatever scraps of paper she could find. She obviously liked to keep her writing when she could, but I suspect that somehow it helped her just to do it, whether she was able to keep it or not. The act of writing itself was a kind of therapy. Mm. Yes, God. Yeah. That's so true. <laughs> and context awesome. is everything for that quote, right? I Absolutely. mean, <laughs> right. Right. And the first part, this is chapter 14, and there's a, an earth seed vo- voice verse at the beginning. And then the first line of this section is somehow my mother endured more than a year of slavery at Christian camp. Like, so this is in um, Asha's, this is in Larkin's voice. This is in Larkin's voice. And even though Larkin has this difficult relationship with her mother, she still understands that soul part of her and identifies with that part of her. And this process for us is like learning to mother ourselves and to love one another in ways that are not explored. Like we have this very deep and abiding love for one another that, you know, goes beyond the things that we see in the media or the things that we're offered to consume and it's it's more than siblinghood right moya i would more than yeah it's it's so it's such a deep a deep connection that that um longing and grief and the mourning that you were talking about um earlier autumn i feel like our relationship fills in those gaps of disconnection and disjointedness Mm. um in octavia's the thing that's like in the middle of Octavia's writing, I always say she gives us one another. So mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for you guys to have us, um, to ha- having us on the podcast. I'm s- super excited as well. Um, and it's so timely and wonderful. Uh, you, you have, but you know already. You know already. Um, <laughs> I know. Um, Moya, do you want to share a quote as well? Do you have anything like coming, coming to you off the top of your head that you'd like to throw in? Uh, so one of the... One of the quotes, and I and I don't have it memorized, but this is also one of the Earthseed verses, but it's about community and connection. And uh, it's one of the things that they say before, uh, I don't know if you have access to it, Ayana, but right before um, uh, or in their ritual for burying someone, the ritual before the, when they bury someone, um, I'm also pulling it up. <laughs> I'm like, mm, we got it. All right, I think I got it. We have lived we have lived before, we will live again. We will be silk, stone, mind, star. We will be scattered, gathered, molded, probed. We will live and we will serve life. We will shape God and God will shape us again, always again, forevermore. Oh, I love that. I love that. And and for me, it's such a, I think of it as a mantra for thinking about when things get hard or when things are wonderful. It's, it's another way of thinking about God has changed, but thinking about it in connection and in community. And I, what is so fascinating to me about Octavia's work is her deep longing for connection and community, even as she herself has her, you know, hermit ways. And so for me, that quote just, um, 
gives possibility. Like there are times where we scatter, there are times where we gather, and that uh, there is uh, all of that possibility within humanity, that we are not limited by, and there is no one way to be, that we are uh, constantly in flux and that that's not a bad thing, uh, especially in a world that really tries to tell us that there are certain ways that you should do things. You know, you need to, it needs to be, you know, a nuclear family and you need to buy a house and all of this. And I think her work really shows that you can't make assumptions about what the next day is going to look like, but being present to the reality of now and the people of now gives you uh, an opportunity to grow into whatever's possible. And I'd like to add one thing to that, too, that also comes from Asha, Veer, um, Larkin. She begins a book, or at some point, it's written over and over again. They will make a martyr of her. Um, And I'm often thinking about the way that we martyrize Octavia and, like, we we make her into a goddess um, and how very human she was um, and, and what parts of myself need to be divine like, how do I need to uplift the parts of myself that I find lacking? Um, and also what what in my life needs to die away and pass away and be like buried and regenerated into something different that will sustain me? Like, how do I how do I sustain myself? How do I process the things that need to that no longer serve me? Like, that's what that verse says to me, too. Like death is death is generative. Um, n- not always, but you know, things come out of grief. When we when we grow our own food, it's because something else has died and decayed or shed its seeds in order for something new to grow from it. And that's the season that we're in. So I guess I think about that. Um, I think about that a lot right now, uh, because some version of yourself or who you were has to uh, you know, whoever you thought you were before the apocalypse, right? That person may not exist anymore. Um, and And who are um, and that's what Octavia was was inventing, reinventing herself or giving birth to a new self. That comes out of her archive a lot. And that's something that I try to make that a practice for myself. And that's when my work and our, our work together grows in the world, I think. And Adrian, you do this a lot. And I know from what I understand of your work, Autumn, that's something that you do too. Like what is what is underneath this snow, right? It's like, okay, <laughs> this is the dormant, this is a dormant period. Like this is the time when we're, you know, growing seeds inside. Mm. Like what's next? I, right? And I literally have <sighs> a giant table covered in, um, in like literally over a hundred tiny little starts um, in mm-hmm. my, in my sunroom, my house right now, because truly that is the season we are in. So thank wow. you for calling that forward. So good. <laughs> Um, I I am overjoyed by this conversation, overjoyed that we have woven some of these threads together. And I think from this conversation, people can hear how it feels to be Earthseed, um, like what it means when we get together and how it's just, you know, the territory is so rich. Like, I think sometimes I see people like, oh, there's Octavia, but look, there's all these other sci-fi writers. And it's like, yes, there's all these other sci-fi writers. And there's so much in Octavia. There's so much there that in her life, in her legacy. And I'm so grateful that you all are holding and helping us to continue to unfold and focus and stay curious and stay passionate about 
this teacher and writer and human being goddess human. Um, so what we're going to do is we'll post on our show page the link um, for your Patreon when it's up and the link to the Octavia Butler Legacy Network page and Twitter page so that people can go there and follow you. And that is going to be the end of our show. <laughs> If you would like to support the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network, you can make a sustaining donation using Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash oeblegacy. Again, that's patreon.com slash oeblegacy. Thanks for supporting this incredibly important work. Thanks for listening to our show. We're on Twitter and Instagram at EndoTheWorldPC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation, which we now know is an Octavia strategy, to our show by visiting our page <laughs> at patreon.com slash end of the world show. Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. Thank you for doing that. And I just want to say yesterday that I read those reviews and was crying. So thanks for the people who've already done it. It worked. It made me They're cry. They're so beautiful. Um, <laughs> They're so good and just revealing and vulnerable and just great feedback. Um, How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the amazing, beautiful, big papa, Zach Rosen. Music to, for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran, Mother Cyborg, and Blue Dot Sessions. All right, we're done with our credits. It's the whispers in the sky that keep us moving.